We just can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. Thank you for uh, being here at Stone Point this morning. We just want to uh, say thank you for taking the time to uh, join us. If you're a first-time guest, we are grateful that you're here. And uh, hey, we're excited that you are uh, with us, whether you're uh, here in Wills Point or you're joining us in Edgewood. Either way, uh, we're grateful that you're with us. And uh, today, I hope, is a blessing to you as we continue uh, this series called Small Town. Uh, this is week five of a series that we began, uh, and we just started talking about really the, the, the things about small town, rural Texas. And uh, one of the things that you wouldn't really think is that God could use people in small towns. And the reason why is because so many of us think that that all the major happenings that God is doing across the world are in urban centers uh, or in urban fringes. And what I would just say is I think God wants to do an incredible work out here in small town Texas, in rural uh, Van Zant County. I think God wants to use communities like Wills Point and Edgewood and even uh, the metropolis of places like Elmo or uh, you know, Myrtle Springs or anywhere else that the Lord has us uh, be a part of, whether we live and work or play uh, in those areas, God wants to use us. And we know that there are some challenges. And one of the reasons that uh, there are challenges in a small town is because uh, most of all uh, is because there's people that live there. And when there's people, uh, you're going to have challenges like gossip and you're going to have uh, things that you're going to have to deal with. But the thing is this, I believe that God has put people here uh, in this area to be a light in the darkness. And my prayer is, is that we would figure out, God, how do I be a part of what you want to do? How am I a part of, of what you're wanting to do in, in this area? And I'll tell you, uh, I, I'm going to give you a message today based on really, I think, what the Lord has been teaching me. And uh, it's just been a privilege that as I've been studying the book of Malachi, that God has been able to put a message on my heart that kind of fits in with a series that we've planned months ago. Uh, but my prayer is that you would just see some of the things that I'm wrestling with as a leader uh, in our community and church and as a father, as a husband. And, and one of the questions that I think we all have to ask is, um, God, why not me? Why not me? In small town Texas, why not me? Why not us? Uh, last week, Cody uh, did a great job of helping us understand that one of the reasons I think that oftentimes we think that God can't use us is because of our past. And ultimately, it's really hard to go to people that we used to do things with and say, hey, by the way, uh, let me tell you about Jesus now and how he's changed my life. When we used to uh, drink in pastures with them, when we used to do things with them that didn't honor the Lord. But the deal is, is that God has put us here and we want to be known as a people that continually say, hey, we believe that God can use us. And I pray that people would know us in Van Zant County here locally at Stone Point Church as people of light and hope. I pray that they know that we're the most committed people to the local church that there are in all of Van Zant County. I pray that they know that you've got leaders that are going to be stubborn and they're going to continue to say, no, we've committed to things that will far outlast us. I pray that we're known for that. I pray that people say things like, um, that, hey, it, membership is really hard there. I pray that they know that. And the reason why is because I think that's what the God of the Bible is calling us to. And, and the reason why I believe that is because of what I've read and seen, not only in the scriptures, but ultimately, I think, what I've seen in the Old Testament. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Malachi. Maybe you're here like, oh, I'm new to church. I don't even know what Malachi is. Malachi was a prophet, so it means he spoke on behalf of the Lord to the people. The people he spoke to are the nation of Israel. And uh, he is going to be the last prophet that speaks in the Old Testament. Maybe you're here like, I don't even know what the Old Testament 
Testament is, so I surely am gonna, are not going to know what Malachi is. So the Old Testament is, is 39 books, uh, and those all point to a nation. They talk about a nation called Israel in which God uh, supremely elects and he calls to be his people. We'll walk through that in just a second. Uh, after the Old Testament, it comes the New Testament. The New Testament is going to talk about a man that comes from the nation called Israel, and this man is going to become the Messiah of the world. He's the one we know as Jesus. Ultimately, we're going to be celebrating his death, burial, and resurrection next week. And so just as we think about the good news that Jesus offers, that's why we also take the challenge and we invite somebody to be a part of what God is doing here. And so I encourage you to invite a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker who otherwise won't go. And I promise that we will present a case for the resurrection in a way that is intellectual aspiring, but also theologically proven. And I pray that it will be a challenge to all of us as we listen on and be a part of that. But don't miss that. Why? Because that's what the New Testament is about, the good news of Jesus. And so if you're in the Old Testament, the very last book called Malachi, um, Malachi is the last prophet. He's going to speak uh, in the in in really the uh, early to mid late you know early to mid four hundreds. We don't know exactly the date, but what he's talking about is is ultimately to a nation, and this nation is called Israel. In order for you to understand what he's talking about, you need to know a little bit about this nation of Israel. So lean in with me because I'm going to give you a quick rundown. The nation of Israel was God's supremely chosen people to ultimately bring about his purposes throughout the earth. Israel was selected uh, as God approached this guy named Abraham. He was living in Mesopotamia, Ur, the Chaldeans, and he goes, Abraham, I want to call you to be my man. And as you're my man, I'm going to make a people from you. And Abram, we're going to call them the, the Jewish people. They're going to be the people after my own heart, and you're going to be my own possession. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he's going to make a promise to Abraham. And here's what he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And not only am I going to make you into a great nation, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to bless your name. I'm going to give you people. And I'm also going to give you land. And then also, I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Meaning those who come up against you, I'm going to tumble, and I'm going to thwart their plans. But those uh, who support you, I will also support them. And Abraham goes, okay, God, I'm going to follow you. He leaves Ur the Chaldeans, and he follows God, and he decides that he's going to begin the father of the great nation of Israel. Israel then will begin to follow God. And so God says, listen, I'm going to impart to you my law and my covenant, and I'm going to give you a promise. And then he does, in Leviticus chapter 26, he gives them the Mosaic covenant. And the covenant is, is that, hey, here are my laws. Here are the things I want you to obey. They line up very much with Exodus 20, which are the Ten Commandments. And he goes, I want you to follow me. And if you follow me, I'm going to bless you. And not only am I going to bless you and make your name great, I'm going to give you people, descendants. I'm going to give you the promised land, the hope of the, the nation of Israel. And you are going to be in a land that's flowing with milk and honey and all the things that he promised. And then later on in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29, and 30, God outlines another covenant, which is called the Palestinian covenant. And the Palestinian covenant goes along with the Abrahamic and Mosaic. He goes, I'm going to make you into a great nation. If you do what I ask you to do, I'm going to keep you in the land. But if you don't, then I'm going to remove you from the land. I'm going to remove your blessings. I'm going to scatter your people. And you're going to become, in a sense, an enemy of God as opposed to a friend of God. And so what he says is, is all the things that are directly tied to Israel are based off of your obedience. If you follow me, you're obedient to me, then he goes, I'm going to bless you. If you don't follow me, you're not obedient to me, then you're going to find yourself in opposition against the God of the universe. 
And that's what will happen. Matter of fact, there's a guy named Daniel who is also a prophet of the Lord. Daniel wrote in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Babylon came in. They actually uh, thwarted the plans of Israel because of their disobedience. They're booted out of land into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and they take over the city of Jerusalem. They tear down its walls. They destroy its temple. They take all the articles of the temple for themselves. And here it is, Jerusalem, the people of God, the inhabitants of Israel are now in desolation. They're in ruin. They have been corrupted. Ultimately, because their hearts have followed other gods, they have now found themselves in a dilemma. And this is the prayer of Daniel. This is what he says in Daniel chapter 9. If you'll read it with me, I'll put it for you on the screen so you don't have to move from the book of Malachi. This is what he says. He goes, Oh God, all of Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. You could underline refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and the sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. He goes, God, you told us. Back in your law, in the day of Moses, you told us that if we weren't obedient, that we would be pitted against you. God, we've, we've sinned. And verse 12 says, And you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a great disaster. And under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like that has been done to Jerusalem. He goes, God, we have been desolated and you told us about it. Verse 13, he says, And just as written the law of Moses, all the disasters come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. He goes, God, the, the most challenging thing, he goes, is not only have we been booted out of our land, not only have you ripped your, your possessions and, and your blessings from it, he goes, God, we saw it. And he goes, and we haven't even repented and turned back to your truth. He goes, God, we're in a bad spot. In verse 14, it says, The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. The Lord our God is righteous in everything that he does, yet we have not obeyed him. And here it is, this nation laid in ruins because they didn't obey God. And so they were in captivity for 70 plus years. And then after that, God begins to bring a wave of people to go back to Jerusalem. And they begin to slowly rebuild the temple. And then you have the second wave of guys like Ezra, and they continue to move forward. And then you've got Nehemiah and all of those guys. And they go and they not only establish the sacrifice again, but they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, and they begin to be God's people. But here's the challenge. Out of who knows how, how many millions of Jews were scattered at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The scripture tells us in Ezra that only 43,000 Jews, just a myriad handful, a mere handful of people go back. And so it's a very small remnant of people who go back and they say, we're going to rebuild, we're going to be God's faithful people, and we're going to do what God says for us to do. And the rest of them, after 70 years of captivity, you think about that. If you've lived in small town East Texas for 50 years, your grandparents moved out here, you can't see yourself going anywhere else. And so here it was. After 70 years, many of the Jews had married Babylonian women and other people. They had continued to worship other gods, many of them, because of their idolatry, had stumbled into that. Very few people were wanting to be God's man or woman. So very few went back, but among the ones that did, they rebuilt the walls because of the blessing of uh, kings that didn't even know God, like Artaxerxes, they were able to go back. And the, the temple was finally established and rebuilt around the year 516, uh, completed. Now Malachi, though, is a guy who would write almost 100 years after that first move, that first wave of people going back. And after all of that's taken place, Malachi says, man, 
God has a, a problem with us. And you would think, well, okay, the Israelites, I mean, they were God's chosen people. They're blessed by God, going to have a great name, people, blessing, descendants. You would think they'd get it right. They've been booted out of the land only to come back. They're now worshiping in their second temple. They're bringing daily sacrifice. And the Lord, though, goes, hey, listen, I have a problem with your people, Malachi. I have a problem, and you need to speak on behalf of them. And this is where I've personally been studying over the last couple of weeks. I've scoured over every verse, and the Lord has challenged my heart. And I just got to share the message with you. And this is what he says in verse 1 of Malachi 1. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. He goes, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And so to the people of Israel, God goes, look, I have loved you. And the people of Israel go, how? God, how are you loving us? We're not seeing your love. You've booed us out. We come back and we're trying to, to worship you. We're trying to honor you. We're trying to do daily sacrifice. But how have you loved us? We feel so unloved. The things that you promised our father Abraham, that we would have a name, that we would be protected, that we'd be blessed, that we have descendants. We're not seeing that, God. Where is all of that? And then he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And the word there, hate, is really the idea that I loved less. It's the idea that he says, I have, I have laid his hill country, meaning that of Esau, and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert, which are like, like coyotes or wolves. So he goes, here's the point. And listen, you got to lean in with me for just a second. In the nation of Israel, you had Abraham, who his son was Isaac, and then Isaac had two twin boys, his wife, Rebecca, was barren. They pleaded for the Lord to give children. Isaac was around 60 years old when these two twins were born. Their names were Esau and Jacob. Esau, the hairy one, was the oldest. Jacob, the scripture says in, uh, in Genesis chapter 25, grabbed the heel of his brother and ultimately was born that way. And he was the younger. Now listen, the birthright for the people of Israel always would go to the older. But yet the Lord prophesied, even when uh, Rebekah... Ask the Lord, God, I can feel something grumbling in my womb. There is something going on between these boys. And the Lord said, it is the two twin boys that you will have. And the, and the older will serve the younger. And it was a prophecy there, that even to her, that listen, I'm actually going to flip it. The birthright's not going to go to Esau, the oldest. It's going to go to Jacob, the youngest. And later on in their life, Esau, old in age, would actually trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. And Jacob would be the lineage. Now, the reason I tell you that is because Esau became kind of the father of the, the, the area of Edom. And Edom is not strongly supported by God. Matter of fact, because of Esau's disobedience and because it was promised from the very onset of his life that he was going to use the lineage of Jacob, ultimately that would carry through all the way to the Davidic purposes through King David and later on to Jesus. He goes, because I've used Jacob, he goes, I'm going to bless him. And here's the, the point of God in all this. He goes, listen, if I chose Jacob before he ever came to be, then he goes, you need to always remember that I chose you out of nothingness too. I sovereignly purposed you as Israel to be my people. How do you say I don't love you? If I have sovereignly supported you, I called you out of darkness, out of nothingness, out of Mesopotamia, out of Chaldeans, and I supported you with my righteous right hand. How can you say I've not loved you? 
which is the whole thing for us as believers. Think about it for just a second. How could we ever question God's love for us when he willingly gave his son for us to ransom us on the death of Calvary to support us with his righteous right hand? Anyone who would look to him would be saved and lifted up. That's the point. And he's going, look, this is what I want you to know. I have supported you. But he goes, you would say that I haven't. He goes, but Edom, Esau's lineage, he goes, it's destroyed. And then you would say, well, what if they build up? What if Edom rebuilds itself? He goes, well, I'll tear it down. They're called a wicked country. Verse 5 says, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The idea, he goes, look, you need to quit worrying about Esau and Edom, and you need to worry about Israel, the people of my sovereign purpose. I have elected you, appointed you, I've loved you, I've cared for you, I've demonstrated my love for you, so why are you questioning my love? And then the conversation continues, and God begins to go after the priest the people that are the leaders of the nation of Israel. He, he goes after them, and this is what he says in verse 6. He goes, A son honors his father and his servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And God says, okay, listen, if, I, if you want to be loved by me, and you want to be strongly supported, and you want Israel to be great, then he goes, if I'm the God of Israel and the father of this great nation, ultimately I gave all my authority to Abraham and ultimately to Isaac and to Jacob and so forth. He goes, then the question is, is how are you loving me? How are you honoring me? And that's really the, the theme of this book. He goes, if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priest who despise my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? And then what the Lord says, verse seven, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, well, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table might be despised. And when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? Hey, or when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? He goes, present those to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? And here's what he does. Listen, lean in with me. The God of the Bible speaking to Malachi as he speaks on behalf of the priest. The priest goes, God doesn't love us. And God goes, well, how have you loved me? You don't honor me. When in word or deed, you're not doing things. And he goes, well, they go, well, aren't we, aren't we sacrificing to you? Aren't we doing what you told us to do? And then this is where the Lord drops the mic. And he goes, how are you honoring me? Oh, so you think that honoring me is bringing me your blind sheep? You think that honoring me is bringing polluted foods? Like you're supposed to bring me the first fruits. Malachi 3 will speak about that. He goes, but you don't bring me the first three. You, you bring me the sack of potatoes that have rotted out. And your family won't eat them, so you throw them on the altar of the Lord and you expect me to bless you. And he goes, you know the requirements of the Levitical law. In order to, to have sacrifice daily, you ought to bring me the best, fattest sheep there is. It should be without spot or blemish. That's the requirements. I'm looking for the male in your flock that's really good. But he goes, you have males in your flock because I'm the eyes of the Lord. I see, but you don't bring me the male of your flock. What do you bring me? You bring me the blind ones. You bring me the sick ones. You bring me the wasted foods. You bring me the junk. And you expect me as the Lord of heaven and earth to see favor on my people when you continually to bring polluted junk to the altar. Y'all see this tension? That's what he's talking about. And the people of God continue to bring God a cheap, cheap religion. It's costing them very little. And listen, at the end of the day, God is not going to bless anybody when you continue to bring a cheap religion to him. Verse 9, and says, And now entreat the favor of God, that he might be gracious to us, which such a gift from the hand, that he'll show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. He goes, and you continue to pray, Oh, Lord, find favor on us. And you continue to do your sacrificial things daily. You haven't rejected those things, but you have not honored me in them. You are doing it out of repetitious. 
cycle. You're doing it because you have to. You're not doing it because you desire to. You're doing it because somebody's making you do it. And then verse 10, it says, Oh, that there would be one among you that would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire of my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The Lord goes, in all of this, all of the junk that you keep bringing me, he goes, it would delight my heart if all of Israel, if just one man would stand up and say, no more junk. If one person would just stand up and say, we're not doing this anymore. He goes, oh, how delighted I would be. If just one man would stand up. It's the idea in the, the, the day of Asa's reign in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, a verse that many of us have heard before. But it just says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. The idea the Lord is looking for anyone who would just stand up. And in all of the area of Israel, all of the tribes that are, are left there, in the, he goes, I'm just looking for one person. I'm not looking for a ton of people. I'm just looking for one person that would stand up and say, no more junk on the altar. No more blind lambs. No more polluted food. No more lame and sick things. We're going to give the Lord the best we have. He goes, that's what I'm looking for. And in verse 11, he says, And from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He goes, I'm just looking that when the sun rises and the sun sets, that there would be a sacrificial system in which something is offered diligently, that my name is promoted as it should be. It reminds me of Philippians 2. The idea that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. That's what the Lord is longing for, that every single part of his creation would ultimately love to give him honor and praise. And that's his desire. Verse 12 says, But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and his fruit, that is, its food may be despised. He goes, But you, he goes, You don't bring honor to my name when you bring me the stuff that you're bringing me. He goes, I, I've despised you because you've despised me. And then you say, look at verse 13. And then you say, well, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Not only do you bring me your junk, but when I'm not honored by it, you complain. And you say, well, God, why aren't you honored? I don't understand it, God. Why, why is this stuff not acceptable to you? And he says, and you bring all that's been taken by violence or lame or sick. And you bring that as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice the Lord what is blemished. For I am great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And it brought up a handful of questions to me. As I'm reading this, there are some things. And, and number one, I, I was thinking about the priest. And he goes, look, the reason that this is a problem is because you have brought a, a, a watered-down, cheapened sacrifice. You've polluted things, you've wanted God's blessing, and yet you're not blessing him with the same. The reason that this is a problem is because no one will stand up and say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. And he goes, I'm just looking for somebody to be faithful. And he goes, and the problem is, is this is what the priesthood is doing. And I couldn't help but think, just New Testament. Okay, let's think about priesthood. See, the priesthood, we think, is the bishops, the overseers, you know, the, the cardinals, and then the bishops, and then ultimately the priesthood. We think, oh, wow, it must be the, the one person that's leading the church that's not honoring the Lord. And no, the Scripture would tell us that as us in this room who have professed Jesus ultimately as our Savior, and we have leaned on Him and ultimately taken part of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection to set us apart, to give us a new life in Christ. He goes, no, you're the priesthood. 
Now think about that for just a second. If you and I are the priesthood and God had a problem with the way they lived their lives, then maybe we should start asking the question of, if I'm a priesthood, how do I support that in Scripture? And then from there, what does that mean for me? And so let me just support the priesthood part in Scripture real quickly. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6 just says this, As you come to him, you are a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God you are chosen and precious. Sounds a lot like Israel. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the question then becomes, okay, if I'm to offer sacrifices because I'm a priesthood, then the question is, is what am I offering him? Because here's the deal. We know that the day of bringing male sheep or goats to the altar is, not, is, is for gone. It's gone. So what are we bringing him? And he goes, I'm bringing him my life. Paul writes this way to his buddy Timothy, and he says it in 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be an, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He goes, when we set ourselves apart, he goes, we remind ourselves that we once lived in darkness, but now we are a part of the, the, what? the treasured people, the holy, uh, set-apart people of God. And we're a priesthood of believers. Because we're a priesthood of believers, what are we to do? We are to live our lives as a vessel for God in honorable use. And so as you think, okay, well, what does that look like? Well, it means that we're ready for every good work. We're ready to, to be his people, to his men, to stand up and to support whatever the Lord wants to do in our lives and in our area. And it reminds me of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then it just says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. That will be conformed to this world, but be transformed the renewal of your mind. By that, by that you'll be testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so think about this. If we're a priesthood and we are to be vessels of God, he goes, you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And here's what happened. God, being rich in mercy, lavished upon us his love through his son, Jesus, who is now the acceptable priesthood and the sacrificial gift, Hebrews 4.15. And now he's calling his church, the people of God, to do the same, to be a priesthood of believers and to sacrifice our lives daily for him. And the question I couldn't help but wrestle with is, why, God, do I not sacrifice myself for you on a daily basis? And here's why. Because I'm a living sacrifice. See, in the day and age when they would bring a, a, a lamb or a goat, it would be slain and they would lay it there. And, and listen, something that's dead and useful in that sense, there is, is an aroma pleasing to God. And that incense and that aroma would go to the Lord. But here's the deal. I'm a live sacrifice. And so my dilemma oftentimes is that I want to crawl off the altar. I don't want to stay there. And the reason I don't want to stay there is because in my flesh, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. Ultimately, it would bring corruption and deceit in my own life, but it's a real struggle. But I started thinking, okay, God, if I'm a priesthood of believers, if, I'm, if I am to be your guide, if I'm to be your, your gal, you should ask. And God, what is it? If I'm a, if I'm a priesthood of believers... I'm to be a vessel for your use. I'm to be sacrificially living for you. God, if, you're, if your eyes are roaming to and fro, and you'll even go to the links of going to Wills Point or Edgewood, Texas, looking for your guy or gal, then God, why not me? Why not me? And it just brought some questions up that I thought, man, I had to answer. So over the last week, I've not only answered, but I shot an email to my staff, and I was like, you need to answer these questions too. 
Because at the end of the day, these are really important questions. And I think the first question I have you ask, if you want to write it down or take a picture, uh, you, you would be fine to do that. But what ways, if we are sacrificed, have you polluted, polluted your sacrifice to God? What ways have you personally cheapened your obedience to him? In what ways? Like, you think about that. If he's purchased you with his own blood, he's made you the temple of the Holy Spirit. As we started out the year, you were bought with a price, you're not your own. You're a member of his body. Then the question that becomes, well, what ways have I cheated you, Lord? What ways have, have I cheapened my obedience to you? One of the challenges that the Lord had with the people of Malachi and ultimately the priests is that they would bring sacrifices. They would say that not only are they cheapening them, that they would bring them, but even in bringing them, it said in verse 13, they would snort at the Lord. The idea they would grumble against the Lord. So the second question is this, is even in your sacrifice, in your priestly duty, what ways do you grumble and complain? What is it that you grumble and complain about? In your service to the, to the king of kings, the one who purchased your blood, are you complaining? Maybe it's because of me or our leaders. I don't know. What are you complaining against? I would rather call you to no service than service under contempt. And ultimately you're grumbling and complaining because it doesn't honor the Lord. And God goes, I have great contempt for me purchasing your blood and you grumbling and complaining about your service to me. It's a problem. He goes, and you, you need to deal with that. And that's something I have to deal with. I, I, can I tell you that it's, it's a challenge sometimes because I, I want to have some of my own time too. Uh, there's some nights I just don't want to answer the phone. There's some nights that I've chosen not to. You know, I can grumble and complain with the best of you. Listen, it, speed of the pack, speed of the leader. It's something I'm guilty of. I've had to confess to the Lord about myself. But the third question is the one that's gotten me the most, and I think the one I need to lean into the most, and that is what keeps you from being God's man or woman. In verse 10, he goes, I'm just looking for one person in all of Israel that would just stand up and shut the gates of the altar. I mean, one way to fix the polluted sacrifice is one guy just says, no, no more. Like the, the altar shut down. If you're going to bring him that, no more. And the question is, why, why God, can it not be me that's that? Why is it not me that that's that, that I'm the faithful guy? And, and here's why it's not me. Here's why the Lord can't use me. And the number one reason is that I'm self-reliant. Too much of what gone on here is because of my own power. Um, I've started probably eight or ten groups, and the reason I've started so many groups now that I look back on it is ultimately because I thought it was my job to be your savior to make sure you got into a group. That we had enough groups, healthy enough to be able to do things. All the while, I've been self-reliant. All of it has been dependent on me and ultimately not on the Lord and just trusting him that he'll do and align things the way he wants. His sovereign purpose is greater than mine. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I've approached many things without the thoughtful prayer that it should take. Oftentimes gathering for hours on a weekend and spending just a few moments in prayer. Oh, what a tragedy that is. How many of us, we don't rely on the word of God daily? John 15, Jesus says, look, I'm the vine, you're the branch, the man remains in me, and I am him. He'll bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And I don't think we put enough precedence on what Jesus says there. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, so much of what happens here, I think, at the end of the day, is a bunch of men showing up out of our obligations, but we are in sense, if not careful, showing the Lord some of our cheap sacrifice. The reason I say some of that is we've recently taken a 4C assessment out of all of our members, 29% of them are in the Word on a daily basis. That means 71% of us are not. 
That means that 71% of our body is self-reliant. And our main reason for not, 83% of us would say it's just because we're too busy to be in the Word. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive me for leading you to cheap crap. Well, what a tragedy it is that we would think that this thing is about us and our power and our self-reliance. Oh, if I could go back, the one thing I would do more than anything is I would make membership a higher priority than we already have. I would run more people away because at the end of the day, here's what I want you to understand is that this is God's thing, not mine. This is not man's thing. This is God's thing. We are blessed that he is used in the way he has. Because I promise you it's been in spite of me because of my self-reliance. Another reason God might not use you or me is what if it's a lack of preparation? Man, some of us in here, you got enough gifts and abilities that you can wing it. I mean, you can show up to a journey group and ultimately not be that prepared. And you wonder why our journey groups oftentimes have challenges. It's because our leaders aren't prepared. I mean, we, we, we want to fake it till we make it. And here's the bottom lines. It catches up to us after a while. Why? Because you can only shoot from the hip for so long. And the Lord says, I'm going to bring that thing down. And my prayer is, is that we would not lack this because of lack of preparation. Maybe it's apathy or lack of discipline. I think that's a challenge for many of us in this room. Some of it's the reason we're not God's guy or gal is because of our passiveness. Our walk with Jesus is not all that exciting. At the end of the day, 41% of us don't even look for opportunities to share our faith. We don't even think that's all that much of a priority. We don't even think about it from time to time. Many of us, it's fear. We're scared. We're scared to trust God in the next steps of our lives. The very things he's called us to, we go, we're afraid of doing that. One of the reasons that we can't be God's guy or gal is because we just continually cheat God. We cheat God with our time, with our treasure, with our health, with our bodies, everything. 50% of us in this room as members of the body would say that we don't even honor the Lord with our finances. That means one of two members say, I don't even give to the local body in a way that expresses God's goodness in my life. One of the reasons that we can't be God's guy or gal is because we're overly critical. Just as the, the priesthood would grumble and complain, many of us grumble and complain. Some of us, we do it so often, we're not even aware of it anymore. People just know us as that. That's verse 13. One of the reasons that we can't be God's guy or gal, some of us, is just sin. And it's sin that so easily entangled us, and it's sin that we've known all of our lives that we won't deal with, so much to the point that when we honor the Lord with our lives, we don't even see the sin anymore. And some of us, we don't want to kill it. We won't go to the lengths that Jesus said we should go to, cut off our hands, gouge out our eyes. We're not willing to deal with the sin that so easily entangled us. And for some of us, it's a sin that as we are in our mid-40s or our mid-50s, we've been dealing with it since we were 13 or 15 or 20. And for some of us, we just kind of passively put it away instead of kill it. God goes, I can't use you in that way. I think the biggest deal, some of us, we can't be used because we're comfortable. We just want to be comfortable. We don't want to have hard conversations. I just want to go to church and I just want to go home and I just want to hear a message and I just want to applaud. And at the end of the day, I want to raise my hand, sing a few songs, feel good about myself, and I want you to leave me alone. And God goes, that's fine if you want that, but you can't be my man and my woman. I think the biggest problem here at Stone Point, can I confess to you, is that our rhetoric doesn't match our reality. The things that we say as ideals oftentimes are not the things that we do. 
That's a challenge because the Lord can't use us. And I think about this for just a second. If God's eyes are roaming to and fro throughout the earth and he's looking for one person to support, not an entire congregation, just a person to support, the question is, God, why not me? I don't know about you, but I've figured out a few reasons why it may not be me. And so can I just tell you what I did? I went to my journey group last week because I'm in the middle of this and I just shared with all our guys, guys, listen, these are the things you need to press in on. I'm self-reliant. I don't pray often enough. Um, There's some shepherding things that I probably haven't been diligent in and I need to be more diligent. You should press in on these things. I confess them to my group. I ask them to pray for me that God would begin to heal me of this area of self-reliance. Because at the end of the day, this is God's thing. And it's not my job to be your savior. Matter of fact, can I just tell you, there's a lot of restless nights, a lot of challenge in my life that I've placed on myself as trying to be your savior. And I can't be your savior. Because there is only one. And our goal is to point to him in the way we live our lives. Let me show you just a quick video of a guy who uh, we have had on our staff for the last few years. The purpose of us hiring him ultimately was to train him up and send him out. And we're about to send him out. And over the last few years, we've just been talking to him about being God's man. And there's a lot of reasons why this guy goes, I don't know if I'm God's man. And one of them is just fear. Just fear. Fear of all types of different things. But I want you to just hear his story, and then I want to wrap up this morning and pray in a way that it would inspire us to leave this place. Watch this. So, um, we're going back to Mexico. Hi, Stone Point. <laughs> Hi, Stone Point. <laughs> so, about three years ago, when we first uh, started working here on staff, uh, the main reason why I came here to work is because we were going to go back to Mexico to Romance's hometown, Querétaro, uh, to start a church. And so Pastor Brandon and the leadership was really gracious enough to offer us this opportunity of spending these two, three years in gaining some pastoral experience and, and just how the church works. And so the time has come. And so now we're going to head back to Mexico. We're going to be leaving uh, the last week of June uh, of this year. Stone Point has been key in our journey. It has bring us healing. It has bring us restoration and a new sense of community. Another key area of ministry here at Stone Point has been the journey groups. I remember that the first journey group that we joined even before we started working here uh, was the Tate's group. Uh, and it was just very different than what we have experienced in the past. It was truly living life together. Uh, and so we really enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of, you know, deep conversations. Community here at Stone Point has been just, you know, huge. Uh, now the current group that we are part of, the Jays group, is also just been another uh, stage of life where we are able to experience you know, biblical community and holding each other accountable and just pouring out into others. And community is something that uh, really we wouldn't have been able to be in the place that we are without you know the people that were uh, around us uh, during this season of life. It is interesting how the Lord uses other people in your life to bring you healing, to get you closer to Him. So when you think about Querétaro, it's actually a very thriving state uh, financially, and it's also one of the safest states uh, in the entire Mexico. Uh, it also has a lot of 
culture and it's a country that has been key in the development of the entire Mexican history. And though it might have a lot of things going on for it, uh, one of the things that is quickly being developed is that it's quickly losing uh, its most precious asset and that is uh, its families. So because of the busyness of life, because of all the uh, opportunities and all the things that can happen, uh, the families we feel like are quickly being pushed aside in the altar of success or personal advancement. One of the areas that we would really love to focus as we go back to Mexico is investing and in promoting uh, biblical values, how to really be a, a family as God designed it. For me, I think it goes along with my personality, all the fears about moving from the things that I know to the things that I don't know. So in a sense, it's like, oh, if I stop and think about it, we need basically everything. We need a place, we need chairs, we need everything. And then in a sense, going back to where people have known you before knowing Jesus and you know them. And in a sense, it's a little bit stressful. For the girls, I think they are most fearful about language. Uh, Hannah, the oldest, and Kyla, the middle one, I think they they manage Spanish well. Uh, the little one is my concern, but at least she's small, so she can get it. So in the midst of all of this, one verse that's really been uh, of encouragement to, to myself is is when Paul is talking to the, to the Corinthians, and, and the verse is in Spanish is, Bástate mi gracia, porque en tu debilidad mi poder se perfecciona. That translates as, my grace is sufficient, for in weakness my power is being perfected. I want to say thank you to Jose and uh, Roma for sharing their story, and I can identify. And one of the things that we've had lots of conversations over the last few years is that, Jose, you need to understand that what success is in the eyes of man is not success in the eyes of the Lord. At the end of the day, man, we are going to fund you to be obedient. And I don't, I'm not, we're not, we don't need numbers. We don't need anything else. What we need you to do is be faithful. And I know the fears. I know what it's like to uproot your family. And I can't imagine to a whole other country. I know what it's like to go back into your hometown. And Roma goes, I, I, I used to do things there, and I'm not sure that they're going to, they're not going to, what are they going to see in me? I know what that's like. But I pray that they would see the faithfulness of our God. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would support them, that we'd encourage them in the midst of their fears and failures, because they're standing up to go, I just want to be God's guy. I just want to be God's woman. And you know what would be more comfortable? To stay here in America. Their kids are in a good school. They've got a nice little income. They both have jobs. What a success they are here. But I pray that God would deplete all that for the sake of them making his name famous throughout the earth. The question is, is church, what keeps us from being those people? The people of God in Van Zandt County, what keeps you from being the one in which God roams with his eyes to and fro, looking for one person to strongly support? What is it that keeps you from being that person? I pray that you would confess that to somebody that you know and love, maybe to your group, and you'd say, hey, will you pray for me? Will you press in on this? Because I want to be God's guy. I want to be God's gal. Let me pray for his church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you 
that, Lord, you have made us a kingdom of priests. Lord, you tell us in the book of Corinthians that we have been bought with a price that we're not our own. So we should glorify God in our bodies, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that, God, you have indwelt us, Lord. You have given us the ultimate sacrifice in your Son, and then you have not left us there. That, God, you have called us, commissioned us to be your people a people treasured by you, a people of your own possession, once um, not a friend of God, now a friend of God, once in darkness, now in light. God, you love us, you care for us, you want us to be a daily sacrifice, a vessel for your use. And God, I pray that many of us would quit crawling off the altar of sacrifice. I pray that we would quit cheapening our love for you. And at the end of the day, I pray that we would give you our lives, our wills, our intellects, everything that we have, And I pray that you would show us the thing that keeps us from being that person. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's real. And we thank you, Lord, that it rebukes and corrects and trains us towards righteousness, even as we sit in the very seat, whether we're in Wills Point or Edgewood. God, I pray that that your spirit would guide us to truth. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Y'all have a great week of worship.